Amen. Well, so glad you're here this morning. Once again, welcome. And you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18 once again this morning. That's where the Lord has us in his great providence as we make our way through this wonderful book, 1 Thessalonians. And um, as you're turning there, just a, a note, um, I always love seeing the milestones uh, take place in the life of our church and to see the families participating in those milestones. Uh, our family ministry has done a great job in, in uh, getting the new journals for this year, which are passed out to uh, those who will be in service permanently in first grade. Uh, this milestone that we celebrated this morning, our kindergartners, our new kindergartners now participate with us in the music, in the, in, the, in the singing of this worship service before they go back to their classroom. That's a big deal because now they get to be in big church for just a little while, go back to the classroom. Um, and then again, in first grade, they'll be in here for even the preaching of the word. Um, so that's exciting. And then um, just also excited about what's happening within our student ministry and, uh, and to see our member families growing in the Lord and in their responsibility to disciple their children and to see children grow in the faith. Uh, visitors, if you have any questions about what takes place, uh, how does that all work? What are we even talking about in terms of family discipleship or children being part of the worship service? We kind of traditionally thought we just stick them in a classroom and and get a break. Um, well, we would love to explain to you uh, why we do what we do and, and how we do it, um, and even help you towards membership so your own children can be part of the milestone process. Um, and, and you can ask any questions you want about that, but we want our families to be growing in Christ together as God has designed for that to function. And uh, we want the children to be part of the local church. When Paul wrote, uh, in his epistles, many times he smoothly transitioned from writing to particular people like fathers and mothers and then to children. Uh, he just spoke directly to them as if they were part of the congregation. Mothers do this. Fathers do this. Children, hey, you do this. Right? And so he's expecting that they're part of the church. And so uh, we want God uh, to do a work in our kids, and we want to come alongside you as a church to help you. And uh, to the children in the room, uh, children, we are glad that you're with us. We're glad that you're here. You're probably not even listening to me right now, but we are glad that you're here. And um, your parents will tell you what I said later. Uh, but you're really, the children are the next generation of our church. And I don't mean that, uh, you know, in some cliche way. Uh, in just a few years, the children uh, that are now children will be those who are carrying on the baton here in this place. And we need to train them well. Uh, they usually say by the third generation, um, they l usually let go of the rope. And what was built in the first generation in the third generation is torn down. And so we can't let that happen. And that's going to come through training we want to help our children flourish. Parents, let me just say for just a moment, uh, when I think about our job as parents, which we are all uh, you know, striving towards uh, parenting the way in which the Lord desires us to parent, but I think about the parable of the soils, the parable of the soils, and how the job really is to scatter seed, to scatter the seed of the gospel over and over and over again, and then while scattering the seed, you cultivate the soil because some of the seed will fall on the path and it'll just kind of bounce off. That's those who hear the word of God and it's just like, they clearly do not understand it. It's, their eyes have blinders on. And then some will fall along the path and it'll take root really quickly and spring up and there's excitement and looks like it's taken root, but because there's no depth, of root and no good soil underneath of it, that'll just kind of fizzle out. We don't want that to be our children either, to where they accept it while they're kids and then while they're adults walk away. There will be some that take uh, root for a little while and the thorns and the cares of this world will choke it out. 
And we don't want that to happen in our lives of our children either, to where they maybe receive the word with gladness, but then as they grow, the world, the cares, the riches uh, of this world tempt them to walk away from Christ. But then there's those seeds, the the gospel seeds, the word of God that falls on the good soil that's been cultivated, that's healthy, that's soft, that has depth to it. And that plant, that seed takes root and it grows and it bears fruit. And so parents, we can't do anything more than cultivate the soil of our children's heart with love, plant the seeds of the gospel, pray to God that he gives the growth, and as he does, water that plant. And uh, that's what I'm praying that you will be faithful to do um, in uh, the lives of your, your family. And we're here to help you. So we need to be faithful to the word of God in all of this because the word of God is what's going to do the work. It's the only thing that will do the work. And uh, it doesn't return void. We got to trust in its sufficiency to do this salvific work and even this sanctifying work in those who already believe. And so that's what we're going to trust in doing right now. And uh, we're going to look closely at the word of God this morning and allow it to have its effect on us this morning. And so I hope that's why you came here, and I hope that you're there already in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in, verses thir- in verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 18, and that's the section that we'll cover this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I hope you have your Bible. Open it up. Read along with us. Reference it while we're talking about it, okay? I want you to see this for yourself. Make notes in your Bible if you want. Surely write things down so you can remember it, so you can meditate on this passage even throughout the rest of this week. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend He'll descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What an incredible passage. And as we established last week, as we looked at this same section, what we're seeing in this particular passage of Scripture is Paul give this great clarity about what happens to believers who have died. And he does so specifically as it relates to the rapture. What happens to believers who die specifically as it relates to the rapture, which is really the first event in the future events that God has planned. What happens to those who have died when it comes to the rapture? And so to do this, to give this clarity, he gives teaching 
about it, which is pretty standard. That's how the Bible works. How do you have clarity? Teaching. Clarity comes from the knowledge that God reveals. And he wants this teaching, Paul does, to eliminate confusion, despondency, despair, discouragement. He wants this teaching to eliminate any kind of hopelessness that might come from being confused about what happens to those believers who die when it relates to the rapture. He wants them to be confident. He wants them to be comforted by the teaching. And so I've entitled this message and last week's message, Present Comfort from Future, or yeah, from Future Knowledge. Present Comfort from Future Knowledge. This knowledge about the future will bring comfort in the present. And this is part two. As I said, we're building upon what we spoke about last week, what I taught you last week. And so if you weren't here last week, go back and listen, because everything that we say today will build upon that. And so we want you to be caught up with what the Lord is teaching here. Now you say, how do we know what this is what we're talking about? Well, I'm going to show it to you in just a moment. But let me just do it briefly right now. Verse 13 says, Paul says, look at it. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. That's pretty clear. As Paul makes this transition into this section, what he's saying is, I don't want you to not have any knowledge about believers who die. So that's what the section is about. Let me give you the knowledge about the believers who die. Well, you say, how does it relate to the rapture? Well, that's where this kind of uh, le is leading to, because all of this is talking about what's happening to the believers who died during the rapture. When we look down at verse 17, it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. That word caught up there is where we get the word rapture from. And this whole event and explanation is surrounding the event of the rapture. And so what's happening to the believers who die during the time of the rapture? That's exactly what Paul is, is teaching here. And so let me explain to you, though, this is not just information. This is for transformation. This should change these people. This teaching should change these people. And it should change you to have clarity about the future should change how you live now. And you should have clarity about the future. Listen, throughout this entire book so far, and even as I highlighted it last week, this young church was taught about the future by Paul. It's clear. They were taught about Christ's return. We know this is a young church. When Paul's writing to them, they're less than a year old. Paul had just established this church. These are new believers. Paul left and then sent Timothy a short time later to check on them. And what were they taught about early in their Christian life? They were taught about the future, about Christ's return, because it impacts the way we live now. It impacts what we expect, how we live, the hope that we have, the encouragement that we have, the clarity that we have about the afterlife. That's why God's given us his word. He didn't have to, and he hasn't made it unclear if he's given it to us. He's made it so we can understand it. He, that's the privilege of being a believer, that we can know about the things of God so we can trust him and live for him. But these people were made aware of the end. It's clear from the book that they had been given a general order about how things have played out. They, they, they've been taught about the rapture, clearly, because it's here. And they've been taught about the Bema Seat of Judgment because we talked about it just a little while ago, that all the believers in Christ will be gathered and judged. All true believers, but judged based upon their works. The, the, the needless, pointless endeavors that believers pursue that produce no eternal fruit will be burned up like way, uh, uh, hay, wood, and stubble. And those that are of precious jewels and, and of 
and of uh, gold and of silver will, be, will, will last. And so even believers, after they're taken up, will be uh, gathered together and, and their works will be judged. They'll be in Christ, they'll be saved, but there will be a judgment. He's spoken of that. Even then about the tribulation period, as these believers were wondering, did we miss the rapture because there's persecution? And Paul says, no, listen, that was, I told you, you had to suffer. That was going to be part of your normal Christian life. That doesn't mean that you've missed the rapture. That just means that this is how things are going to play out in a sinful world. And then even about the day of the Lord, which we're going to talk about next in chapter five, he's clearly taught them about this. He says in chapter five, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything to be written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. They're fully aware. How'd they become aware? Well, they've only had one minister and that's Paul and his companions. So he's taught them about that. And so they were living with expectation about the future. They were living with anticipation about the future. And they were living with participation in what God is doing now in waiting for that future. But since Paul and Timothy and Silas had left, there had been fellow believers in the church who had clearly died. It's only been a little while. This church had come to know, these people had come to know Christ. This was a real church. And since they left, and since they had checked in on them, there had been believers who had died. And the believers who were still alive were expressing concerns. They were expressing concerns about what would happen to those who died when Christ comes back during the rapture. What's going to happen to him? And it's clear because even as we look at our passage here, it says in uh, verse uh, 15, it says, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And the word precede there means advantage. Those who are left alive are not going to have any advantage over the believers who have already died when he comes to catch up the church. I mean, clearly the whole point is they're concerned that the believers who have died are at a disadvantage when Christ returns to take his people up to heaven. And that's the, the culmination of this passage. That's as close as we, as we get to understanding the concern that these people had. That's the concern. What will happen to them? Are they going to be at a disadvantage? And this is what Paul's going to explain here. They were concerned. They were confused. They needed clarity. And Paul wants to provide it for them. We already saw that Paul doesn't want them to be ignorant or without knowledge about any teaching. Why? Listen now. Because to be ignorant and confused about the teaching of God will only lead to chaos in your life. They were grieving like those who had no hope, meaning like unbelievers who have no clear promises of God to depend on for the future. That's how they were grieving. But believers aren't to grieve like that. What's the advantage then of being a believer in Christ in this world? You have the word of God. You have clarity. You have, you have promises you can trust. You have a hope for the future. You have the teaching of God that you believe in. We shouldn't grieve like that. We should live by the promises of the word of God. So Paul wants to teach them because God has made his teaching clear. And so they don't want, Paul doesn't want them, listen now, to just hope for the best. Right? Isn't that how it usually goes when we see uh, uh, um, those who have no clarity about the future have loved ones die? We just hope for the best. We have good thoughts. We think they're in a better place. We don't really know. Superficial confidence. We don't really know what will happen to them. Paul doesn't want them to live like that. As the people of God, they are to have clarity, knowledge, understanding, confidence. And I think we can relate to these believers. Listen now. I think we can relate to these believers. Because, and I know I can. Because as believers in Christ, I think if we're honest... We have a general confidence about the Lord's return. 
We have a general confidence about the future. We have a, a general understanding that we should have we'll live in a way that pleases him because he could come back at any moment. We want to be ready. But I think we still grieve without the knowledge that's available to us in the word. I think we still grieve as those sometimes who have not taken advantage of studying the word of God and understanding its teachings so we can depend on solid truth in our grief. I think that we have not looked closely at it enough or understood with clarity so that we can have confidence. We want to be the ones who trust in the word of God, who know it, who have clarity. The world at large, listen now, church, the world at large has a generic, can have a generic zeal for God without true knowledge. That's what the scripture says. They have a zeal for God without knowledge. We don't want to live like that. And even in the Christian world, it's been promoted recently that it's really popular not to have clarity about particular things. That it's really cool and humble and loving and accepting to everybody to not stand on clear teaching of the word or to understand what it says. Maybe we can understand this particular doctrine or teaching. Well, let me tell you, the Bible is clear and plain and God wants us to understand it. And so it would be better for us to understand what it says rather than to assume that we should live in confusion. And I think we can look at it here and have clarity just like these Thessalonians are going to have. And so it's gonna come from teaching. So what did we see here? Well, first we saw last week, listen, Paul started with the idea of ignorance to information, verse 13a, ignorance to information. That was the first point that we saw. Look at verse 13, just look down at it. It says, we do not want you to be unaware, uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. Ignorance to information. You can put that up on the screen just so we can look at it. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. What Paul, listen now, what Paul is saying here, he uses in the beginning of this verse a phrase that is extremely common to Paul in the New Testament that I showed you last week that he uses to transition to new topics. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that, that he uses that repeatedly in the New Testament to transition to a new topic, which might be new information for those who are hearing it. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So he transitions to this new topic. And what is he saying? He's saying, I do not want you believers to live without knowledge about those believers who have died. That's exactly what he's saying. He uses the word agneo, which means not to know. I do not want you to not know. That's what's translated here as uninformed. And you can hear it. It means to not know or to be ignorant or to be uninformed about. Agneo, that's where we get the word what? Agnostic, to be without knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge or to know. The Gnostics were those who claimed to have a higher level of what? Knowledge. Put an A in front of that. Agnostic means without what? Knowledge. Those who claim to be agnostic, you say, do you believe in God? They say, I, I just don't know. That's an agnostic person. By the way, that's contrasted with one who is an atheist. Theist means one who believes in God. You put an A in front of that. A, theist, Right? That means one who believes there is no what? God. And so the word that's used here is one that means literally without knowledge. Paul is transitioning to a new topic. Then he's saying, I don't want you to be without knowledge, understanding. About what, Paul? About those who have fallen asleep. And the New Testament, the Bible talks about believers who die as those who have fallen asleep. And so this is not soul sleep. We don't believe that the, per, the believer who dies go into, goes into unconsciousness because the Bible teaches that the believer doesn't go into unconsciousness, but that the believer's soul goes directly to be with the Lord as soon as they die and that their body is the thing that's actually asleep in the grave. Believers... Taken before the rapture, their body is asleep to be raised at a later time, which is what we're going to see here. So if you think about this for just a moment, this is 
Couldn't be more clear as to what Paul's teaching us here. I want you to have knowledge, information, not be unclear, not be without knowledge about believers who die, okay? And now, by the way, what's really wonderful is I was thinking about the fact that the soul goes to be with the Lord, the body is in the grave, and we're gonna see what happens. When does the body actually be reunited with the soul here in this passage? But if this wasn't true, you know, the person would instantly disappear. If the body were to go be with the Lord with the soul, as soon as the believer dies, we wouldn't have anyone to bury, would we? And so the body remains in the grave, will be raised, which by the way, an unbeliever, unbelievers will be raised as well. Their bodies will be raised as well. When an unbeliever dies, their soul goes instantly into everlasting torment, which the Bible calls Sheol in the Old Testament or Hades in the New Testament. It's a temporary place of punishment for unbelievers. And then later, at a later time, their bodies will also resurrect to join their souls in their final abode, which the Bible calls hell. And so John 5, 27 through 29 says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Acts 24, 15 says that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so Paul here is talking specifically about the believers who have died and that their bodies are sleeping, their souls are with the Lord, and Paul's gonna give them clarity as to what's gonna happen. Now, the second point that we saw was that the whole purpose of this was to bring them from a, a faintness that they were having to the hope of a future. That's the whole point. That's number two that we saw last week, a faintness to a future. You can put that up on the screen as well. Faintness to a future, which look at verse 13b. It says that you may not grieve as others do who have no what? Hope. Listen, the whole point of this is pastoral. The whole point of this is pastoral. This is not just information for information's sake. It's a means to an end. The teaching of God's word is not just to have knowledge. It's to transform us that we would know, love, trust, follow, believe in, and be with the Lord. This is for transformation's sake. I want you to know this because I want it to affect the way that you live. Not for you, for the Lord, but it should affect you. What is it? If they have this knowledge, they won't grieve, not as much as unbelievers. It's like, hey, you can cry this much. Unbeliever who loses a friend can cry this much, right? It's not levels. It's how you grieve. It's the way in which you grieve. I don't want you to grieve with one as one without clarity, without knowledge of the promise of the future. I don't want you to grieve as one who's just still confused about what really happens. You can't grieve as ones who have no hope, no promise to depend on, ones who have no future to look to. You got to grieve as ones who are banking on the promises of God found in his word. That's the difference. And so you don't have to grieve the same way as unbelievers do. That's what he means by others. The advantage of, of being a believer in Christ here in this life is that God has given you his revelation by his own choice. If he's given it to you, then he's given it to you so you can understand it and be clear about it. He's made it plain in human language by real people for real people so that you know him, are in awe of him, trust him, worship him, Please him, believe rightly, think rightly, feel rightly, act rightly, because you're informed by the truth. And so you can grieve with clarity and confidence. Now, Paul is going to build on these foundations here in this one verse for the rest of the time. And he's going to explain how, why we can grieve with clear expectation, encouragement, confidence, and he's going to give the teaching so we can do it. So building upon these two, he gives the confidence, the clarification, and the comfort. And that's going to be the rest of our time, the confidence, the clarification, and the comfort. Essentially what he's saying, I'm going to give you this knowledge 
so you can grieve with clarity. And here's why you can have it. And here's the information that you can have clarity about. Here's the actual teaching that you can depend on. Let's start with the confidence. Verse 14. You guys with me? All right. Let's make sure. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, you got to understand, imagine this as the kind of the basis of the whole confidence, the whole knowledge that he's going to give. The, the basis and the foundation for the idea that we can have clarity and a future and, and confidence in what God is going to do for believers who die. This is the basis of confidence. He starts with the word for. See that for in verse 14? See the word for there? All right, that's a conjunction for you English majors or minors. The explanatory conjunction, essentially what he's doing, he's, he's tying these two sentences together to give an explanation. You don't have to grieve as those who have no in information, no clarity, no hope, no promises for the future, because this is an explanatory conjunction here, and he's going to tell them why they can have this hope, why they should have this hope. He says this, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So he starts with this conditional clause. A conditional clause is one that has a condition. If, then. If this, then this. Right? So I want to give you this knowledge so that you don't grieve as one who has no clarity. And you don't have to. Because if this, then this. Now, the if can be understand more of a sense. Since, since we believe this. These believers do believe this. This is a true church. So this is more of a since you believe this. Since we believe this. Now stay with me. Putting it this way, he's essentially saying, because, you don't have to have no hope, because if we believe that Jesus died, that's the if. Now just to expand on that for a moment, that's where the basis of this confidence starts about the future. That Jesus died. Believers are those who believe this message. That Jesus truly, physically, literally, what? Died. He actually died. His body was laid in a tomb. He, there, there was a literal death of the, the Lord Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. What that means is that he died as a substitute. He died in the place of those who would have faith in him. In this act, he acted on their behalf to pay the penalty for sin. He died in your place. If you trust in Christ, you can understand that the death of Christ was to take the punishment that you and I, what? Deserve. He died. But listen, the point here is not just that he died. Because the conclusion doesn't follow the condition. That doesn't make sense if we believe that he died. The whole point here is this. If we believe that he died, and then the emphasis is on the fact that he what? Rose. You know why you can have hope and confidence? Here we go. We're starting to build this basis of foundation of hope and confidence for the future of believers who die. If we believe, since we believe that Jesus actually died and then rose from the grave. In other words, if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead by the power of God, he's saying this, even so or thus, or likewise, or in this manner, or then we should also believe that through Jesus, 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If we believe he actually died and actually rose from the grave, why in the world would you doubt that those believers who die, whose bodies are in the grave, will not similarly be resurrected like their Savior? Do you believe God doesn't have the power? You believe that he won't do it? And so this confidence in the future resurrection of believers is tied to the resurrection of Christ. It's tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Essentially, what he's saying is this. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we should also believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is just a statement, a basis of confidence. You can't grieve like ones who have no hope for the future. You might be concerned about believers who have died, but do you believe that your Savior literally died? Do you believe that he really rose from the grave by the power of God? So then is there any doubt that God can and will do the same for every believer in Christ? There should be no doubt in your mind unless you doubt the resurrection of Christ. You should only have confidence in the future. Confidence is tied to God's work in the resurrection of Christ. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam, in Adam, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You see this? The resurrection for believers is tied to the resurrection of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also with Jesus raise us and bring us with you into his presence. This is the ultimate basis for confidence regarding believers who die. Now listen, Christ died and was raised, so also believers will be raised with him. This is a general statement, and this is one that they should base all of their hope on. Their sleeping bodies of dead believers won't stay in the grave. They won't stay in the grave. They're going to be resurrected. Now you say, well, I can't really relate. This is not my concern. Well, it should be. These believers had great love for one another. We just learned that earlier on in chapter four, so much so that they actually care about what's happened to these believers when they die, after they die. They want these believers to to be with them and they want to to be together in the presence of the Lord and experience all that the Lord has in the future. And so they're concerned, but they shouldn't be because the Lord raised the Lord Jesus, uh, God raised the Lord Jesus Christ and so also will raise every believer. So this is the general basis and this should be your confidence because Christ was raised, so will every believer be raised, specifically regarding their body, and at the time of the rapture. So he goes on to explain then, he's not gonna leave them with this general statement. Verse number two we see here is the clarification. Verses 15 through 17. If, if verse 14 is kind of a foundation, verse 15 through 17 kind of put all the, all the pieces in place. It give the real clarity about how this thing's gonna work. Listen, you don't have to be wondering, confused, because... Take heart that God raised Christ. He will also raise believers. Now, here's another explanatory conjunction. For, and now he's going to just explain. It's like explain upon explain. Let me now just make it even more clear to you how this is going to work. Verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Pretty packed few verses, huh? All right, let me explain to you. As he continues now to expand this teaching as to why they can have hope, what their knowledge should consist of, why they should have clarity, it's on the basis of the gospel, the power of God to resurrect the believers. But also Paul's saying, let me tell you how it's gonna work. You wanna have clarity? I'm gonna tell you exactly how this piece of the future, the rapture, is going to work. Okay, so you wanna know? Hey, look, how's this whole thing gonna happen? Well, look no further. Verse 15 carries this idea further in the sense that it shows that those who are still on earth, listen now, those who are still on earth will have zero advantage over those who have already died when it comes to the rapture. That's the point here. And so this comes close to giving us this insight into their difficulty, their, their confusion. So what were they thinking? Maybe they were thinking, did they who believe, who had already previously died, would they miss the rapture totally? Uh, would their souls uh, who departed to be with the Lord stay with the Lord and their bodies just remain in the grave forever? Because if you think about it, during the rapture, listen close, during the rapture, the believers who are left still on earth will be taken body and soul. So what happens to those whose souls are with the Lord and the bodies are in the grave? Are the bodies gonna stay in the grave and like there's gonna be two tears in heaven? Right? How is that going to work? Or maybe they suppose that while both body and soul of all believers would share in the glory, maybe the rapture, the, those who have already departed, they would have like kind of a lesser degree of glory. I mean, there's concerns here. And so Paul's going to clarify. What does he say to clarify? Well, look at verse 15. He says this, for this we declare to you by what? A word from who? The Lord. Now, essentially what Paul is saying here is I'm speaking to you something that is entirely true from God. There's many people who have debated as to what he's referring to here. This I say to you from the word of the Lord, not that the point changes. I'll explain to that to you in a minute. Maybe it's John 14 verses one through three when Jesus taught about the rapture, but unlikely because what he's about to explain are details that we don't see in that passage. What about Matthew 24, 31, where Jesus mentions the trumpet? Unlikely, because Jesus doesn't give the details that we see here. What about the resurrection that Jesus speaks of in John 11? Unlikely, because what he's about to say, for this we declare to you from a word from the Lord, he's not repeating anything that Jesus had, repeated, had taught regarding the order of the rapture. But what about in Matthew 24 when Jesus taught about the gathering of the elect? Unlikely, because once again here, the information is not the same information. And so none of these details that he's about to give are recorded in the gospel. It's not that he's repeating any of these, not that the, it wasn't true then. It's just he's not repeating anything that the Lord said in the canonical scriptures within the gospels while the Lord Jesus was here on the earth. Or he could have said, well, this is what I say to you by Lord Jesus, and maybe they weren't recorded. John says that not everything Jesus said and did was what? Recorded. Could be. Or maybe Paul's referring to what he's already written in 1 Corinthians. Up to this point, where he's writing 1 Thessalonians, really the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is probably the only thing that was written. So maybe he's saying, I'm referring back to the revelation I received as I was writing 1 Corinthians. But the details he gives in 1 Corinthians 15 about the rapture are not the details he gives here. And so I think that it's the best to just see this as plainly what it is, is that as an apostle of Christ, Jesus gave direct revelation to the apostle Paul to reveal about what? About the rapture. So this is what he's saying here. The point that Paul's making, we, we can stand on one of those or the other. But the, the point doesn't change. What Paul is saying here is, what I'm about to tell you about how the rapture works comes from who? 
the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes with authority. It comes with truth. You can bank on it. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to say, well, this is, someone that, this is something that somebody else told me, or this is something that uh, my friend believes, or this is those people who have this stance about this thing. No, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who holds all the truth, the one who knows all things. This is the word from him. What does he say? That those, Paul says this, that we who are alive, look down at your text, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have, what? Fallen asleep. We who are alive, I loved how Paul says this. He says, we who are alive. Paul believed there was still a chance that he would be alive when Christ returned. He says, we who are still alive, as if he's going to be alive when Christ returned. Now, did he know this for sure? No, because Christ didn't return while Paul was still on earth, right? But that's how he was taught to think. And that's what he taught the believers to think. We're gonna live like Christ could come back in our lifetime. I think that's very pointed for us to notice. Because I think often we, we look at this and there's no way Christ will return in our lifetime. I was driving here this morning and I was thinking to myself, what if at this point right now, while I'm driving to church, the heavens cracked and the Lord Jesus descended and he made a shout and the trumpet sounded and the archangel was standing there and we as believers in Christ rose and the bodies of the dead believers rose too. And those souls were already up with the Lord and we all met together in the air and then ascended into heaven together. What if that happened right now? And we often think there's no way, but this isn't fiction. What Jesus is teaching here is not fiction. And so we can't live like that's not going to happen. In fact, we're taught the opposite, to live in such a way that there's a chance this could happen in our lifetime, to be ready. Jesus, could, Jesus taught this, to be ready. He, he taught over and over that this was going to be sudden. It was going to be while people least expected it. Some would be taken. Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation, I'm coming what? I'm coming back. I'm coming back. We know, we were taught over and over that it's an hour we do not know. Paul talks about it as a twinkling of an eye. It's like as quickly as light hits the eye, that's how fast it's gonna happen. And there's gonna be a sudden tr trumpet. Romans, we just read this earlier, he tells us we should eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. That's what it says there when it talks about the spirit interceding for us on our behalf. In the context, it's in the context of us awaiting our redemption. We don't even know what to pray to sustain ourselves until the point of our redemption as we eagerly wait. Creation groans. But the spirit keeps us until we are redeemed. Either way, Paul knew this, whether he's left or whether he dies before the coming Here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until, so those who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who are still alive will have no advantage over the believers who have already died. That's what he's assuring them of. He's talking about them having knowledge about the believers who died because he wants them to be assured that there will be no advantage over those believers who have already died. That's clearly the point here. They're concerned about these believers who died, but they're not gonna miss out. They're not gonna miss out. That's the whole point. 
They're not gonna, those who are still left, who are gonna be taken up with the Lord when he comes, they're not gonna overtake the ones who've already died. They're not gonna gain advantage over them. They're not gonna take precedence over them. They're, the believers who have already died aren't gonna miss out on anything. They're not gonna be inferior. They're not gonna lose out on any eternal advantages. Nothing. That's what Paul's assuring them of. How is that going to be the case? Well, here we go. Another explanatory progression here. Verse 16. For, I mean, this is just stacking explanation upon explanation. Why are those who died not going to be at a disadvantage? Because here's how it's going to work. You ready? Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend. Now we go into the step-by-step order of the process of the rapture. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, there's the we again, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This is pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, you just really don't have to look very hard to see how this is all going to play out. Let me just explain to you. Ready? First of all, verse 16, the Lord himself is going to descend. You know, in the Greek, when the himself is used, it's emphatic. They could have just said, the Lord will descend, right? But the Lord himself, he's not going to send anybody else. He's not going to be too busy for this event. He's not going to say, I already have other plans, so let me send you know, the, the, the people who work for me. It's going to be the Lord himself. This is the eager expectation, whether we see him when we die or when he comes to take the believers home, you will see the Lord face to face. Your faith will become sight. Can you imagine that day when you see the Lord? Probably nothing like all the pictures that we see about Jesus, huh? You will see him face to face. It's he himself who will descend. Where is he gonna descend from? Verse 16, he's gonna descend from heaven. He's gonna descend from heaven. We already know, turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And there's other verses throughout all the scriptures, Right? Let's say where he's at, he sat down at the right hand of the Father as soon as he was made purification for sin. But verse 10 tells us to wait for his son from where? Look at chapter one, verse 10. Wait for his son from where? Heaven, that's where he is. That's where he's coming back from. So he's gonna descend himself from heaven. Now what's gonna happen next? What's next is that he's gonna give this cry of command. In other words, the word that used here is literally a shout. It's a command. It's a military leader giving command to his troops. And guess who's going to obey what he says? The sleeping bodies. The dead bodies are going to obey the Lord's command to come out. We've already heard that earlier. They're, they're going to obey the Lord's command. So the Lord's going to descend from heaven He's going to come from heaven himself, and he's going to give this shout of command. The commanding shout will command those who are in the tombs to come out. That's what John 5 says. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and what? Come out. He utters his voice, and immediately the bodies of those who are in the grave, where souls are in heaven with the Lord, those bodies will obey the Lord's commands. And that's what's going to happen. And so what's the point is, is that these believers who are coming from heaven with the Lord in the air, the bodies are going to obey the voice of the Lord and come to meet their, their souls in the air. So there will be a voice then, not only of the Lord Jesus Christ, but who else? The voice of an archangel. Listen now, stay with me. We're almost done here. The voice of an archangel. There's no definite article here, so it's, no, it's not the archangel. It's just archangel. Could be multiple archangels, but we only know of one in Scripture. 
and you can turn to the book of Jude just so you can see it. Jude chapter nine is the only place where archangel is referred to. Only other place than here, Jude chap, uh, verse nine. There's only one chapter in Jude. But when the archangel, who? Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, etc. And so there's one archangel that we know of for sure, and that's Michael. And so Michael, by the way, is mentioned in Revelation 12. He's mentioned in Daniel 10, Daniel 12. The scripture doesn't tell us of any other archangel. Is Gabriel an archangel? Maybe, but we're not told that. But we know that the archangel, the leader of the angels, probably Michael at this point, maybe others, will come with a loud voice. The Lord himself will come. He will give a command to the dead bodies. The archangel will give a loud voice from heaven. And then the third aspect here is that there will be the sound of what? A trumpet. And there's many reasons in scripture that a trumpet is used. Stay with me. We're almost done. A lot of things, uh, a lot of places in scripture where we see a trumpet that's used. There's many reasons. When God came down in the Exodus, the trumpet was used to announce him meeting with his people. The deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament was announced with the trumpet. The gathering of God's people for the feasts, the Israelites. The victory for God's people. And here, the same thing. It's all wrapped up in one. A trumpet. God's coming down. The deliverance of God's people. The gathering of God's people the victory of God's people, all happening right here. I mean, if this doesn't get you going, something's wrong. Like, check your pulse. The Lord Jesus himself is coming from heaven. The voice of the archangel Michael, who fights with the devil, and the trumpet blast of God. By the way, at this point, remember how they were scared they might have missed the rapture? You can't miss it. This is going to reverberate around the universe. There's no missing the rapture. They might be suffering persecution, but they didn't miss it. And the whole universe will know when this happens. And then what's going to happen quickly? The dead in Christ will rise first. So those bodies who are in the grave will rise, right? The Lord himself will descend from heaven. He's gonna come. The bodies who are dead are gonna, be caught, are, are gonna rise at his command. Then we who are left, the ones who are on earth, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So they're gonna come with the Lord they're going to be in the air. The bodies are going to obey the command. Those who are left until the Lord's coming will be caught up with the dead bodies. The bodies of those believers who have died will be reunited with their souls. Those who are left will be caught up soul and body at the same time. We'll meet the Lord in the air. And from there, we go into heaven where we will always be with who? The Lord. That's how it's going to work. That's how it's going to work. And so is there any advantage for those who are left over those who have already died? Nope. They actually have the advantage because they're with the Lord earlier. And they get to be with him longer. Their bodies are still going to be reunited, glorified. And we who are left are going to be gathered together with them. That's why when we saw this a, a, a couple chapters ago where he said that all the believers are going to stand together in front of him in the Bema Seat of Judgment and they're going to be judged for their good works or their, or their works that are useless. It's all the believers together at one point. That's how we're going to get there. And so this is the message. Now what's the culmination of all of this? Verse 18 leads us to our third point. It's the comfort. Let me just mention it. 
He says, therefore, in light of all of this, I want you to have knowledge so that you don't grieve with confusion. Our basis is the resurrection of Christ. He's gonna raise those who come to know him. Here's how it's gonna work. And the believers who are left are gonna have no advantage of the believers who die. And this is how it's all gonna happen. And this is from the Lord himself. Therefore, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. You see, this is not just a vague encouragement. This is not a patting on the back and saying, hey, look, those who died, don't worry, they'll be all right. No, it's encouragement with the words. With the words. Teach other people in the church this truth as to how this is gonna work so when they hear the truth of God, they're not grieving as those without clarity. They're encouraged because they're depending on the teaching of the word. They have hope. They have encouragement. They have future, a future hope from the word. And this is how we should be as a church. We can't grieve like believers who have no clue as to what's gonna happen in the end. We grieve as ones who have clarity from the word. And listen, believers in this church will inevitably pass. They'll die. And believers that you know outside of this church will. And we can continue to inform each other about what the Lord teaches in his word so that we can be comforted by these truths. Let's pray. Father, we come. We ask you to take your word. I feel like we could have spent six weeks in this thing. And Lord, uh, trying to take the rest of this today, there's so much here. We could expand on, on every different aspect. But Lord, help us to understand the point here. Is that you give us a promise, you give us a future, you give us a hope, you give us clarity about your return. And how all the believers together, we and those who have already died, will be brought together with you, soul fully conscious and made, conscious and made perfect, bodies transformed into our heavenly perfect bodies, with you in heaven, where we will never be separated from you again for all of eternity. Lord, help us to look forward to this. Help us to have clarity. Help us to give us joy and encouragement, excitement, anticipation to live for you. And Lord, let us encourage one another with this same teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.